Hi, thank you very much for coming uh, today. Um, you are going to hear from several people that have been involved in an attempt to confront the uh, collateral damage from a bipartisan orthodoxy of neoliberal necropolitics. At the same time as we are supportive of the, uh, the movement to thrust Jeremy Corbyn into number 10, we also have to be uh, very realistic about the trajectory of the deregulation and the way it crossed from Michael Heseltine and Margaret Thatcher and crossed over to John Prescott at a certain point and the implications that on a national level and on a local level, um, at least New Labour would have had in this uh, tragedy. We are talking about um, 72 people that died in Grenfell Tower. And what we hope to do today is to attempt to bring a closer relationship essentially with the Labour movement and people in the community that are mobilizing in different ways. For me, the fire was a confluence of three different issues. Number one being deregulation. Um, number two being, of course, austerity. And number three being the rendering of local governments to entrepreneurial forces um, across the country. As we know, there are hospitals, hotels, schools, um, university campuses, um, halls, cinemas that all have seemingly similar um, uh, infrastructure on them, whether it is ACM, Arconic, PE, Renabond cladding, or whether you may be in a situation as we have seen over the past uh, few weeks of timber. Uh, across the outside of homes, but it's also the inside of buildings that are not safe. The fire doors seemingly being non-compliant on a massive level. Not only was this a local scandal, it was a national emergency. So if we start on the trajectory of deregulation, we look at in 1981, uh, Michael time presented the white paper, the future of uh, building control in England and Wales to Parliament. Now, it was mobilized against by those that said that this bill will kill. Heseltine described it as allowing for greater industry self-regulation. And this was the beginning of something called approved document B, which would later uh, play quite an important part in all of this. We look at the way that the Thatcher government took what was previously 300 pages of building regulations and changed it to 25 pages of building regulations. And there's something quite um, memorable to me during the time of the uh, refurbishment around Grenfell Tower. Uh, the board put up around it was written on it, R.I.P. Maggie. So it was taking place at the time that Margaret Thatcher died. Somebody crossed out the word R.I.P. and wrote F.U. instead of R.I.P. So what you have, in a way, 
was fingerprints of Margaret Thatcher on that refurbishment when we look at the change to building regulations that took place while she was the Prime Minister. Um, and who we are? Who we are? Who I am? Okay. Well, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, but I just assumed that the information would be there and we don't have that much time to, to waste, but I will, no problem, I will um, introduce myself. I'm a hip-hop artist, a resident of the community, living in front of the Grenfell Tower, lost my friend and his whole family in the tower, um, and we have been organising in quite an isolated way, really, for the last two years, and we do not feel supported in the way that would be good, really. And, and, and you know, I'm here not to be an uncritical cheerleader. I'm here to talk about the ways in which um, the Jeremy Corbyn -led, -led, led Labour Party can put itself at the disposal of our community. And we have several people who have all been organising across the last two years and also have a point of view on that. But as I was saying, approved document B, it allowed a slippery slope towards the point we are at today through um, edits that were made to it. So while I said um, just before, building regulations overall were taken from 300 pages to about 25 by the Thatcher government, you now have a situation where approved document B itself is about 300 pages. But within it are all types of ambiguities that allow the companies to claim a different interpretation of the law to the government. And, and, and this, is, this is where um, the problematic part of it comes in. And we can't forget that uh, you know, John Prescott was involved in the editing of approved document B um, to such an extent to allow something called um, desktop studies. Now desktop studies, rather than being uh, a situation where somebody who is a fire expert is looking at the information on the desktop, and rather than being a situation where you have a refurbishment like Grenfell, which involved many different layers of outsourcing and many different companies, rather than putting all those materials together and testing them to, to, to determine how flammable they may be once put together, what desktop studies allow companies to do is to get an employee to look at a computer and see the individual results for each component and we'll get into how that testing is taking place also and then make an estimate of how um, safe that would be based on the individual results of each component. So desktop studies are actually something <coughs> fairly, quite violent really, and it was actually, um, you know, after the Lacunal fire, it was uh, the advice that the government received from the coroner is that approved document B needs to be sorted out and needs to be fixed, and that was not happened. We know that, that did not happen. We know that Gavin Barwell um, ignored many warnings uh, regarding fire regulations um, in this country. And the other point of this, of course, of the deregulation is BRE, so Building Regulations Establishment, founded in 1948 and privatised in 1997. And at that point, it became, uh, as the main testing body, that uh, really became uh, at least partially reliant on funding from the insulation and uh, the cladding industry. And they even sponsored the cladding awards, the cladding industry awards. And BRE, what they do now, rather than um, externally testing the uh, materials given to them by the companies, what they do is they give the company space in a warehouse to test their own materials and then report 
the results of their test back to BRE. So it's this, this, this further arm's length form of testing. And uh, you know, as we'll get into with Celotex and Arconic, those relationships you know, really contributed to this situation. The bodies that I think need to be seriously looked at um, off the basis of this fire is of course RBKC, the Royal Borough of Kensington Chelsea, the local council, um, Celotex, um, Arconic. If we look at RBKC to start with and it being converted into an entrepreneurial force, you have national legislation which allows the space for construction companies to skirt the obligation in the building of social housing or affordable housing in its new builds. Now, that legislation has allowed for RBKC to take £33.4 million in payouts from those companies because what it allows the companies to do is make a direct payment to local government to escape that obligation to, um, to fulfil the legal quota. Now, when myself and Ed Darfan actually questioned the council regarding what had happened to this 33.4 million, um, which you know, was reported by the New York Times that RBKC had got that, um, we were told initially that that money was ring-fenced for the procurement of new social housing. But what became apparent in the meeting was actually it had already been spent on maintenance of existing social housing. So what this is indicative of is a relationship between local government and the institution of housing which we understand to be a human right. Now, uh, you've also had statements made by prominent members of the council that they believe social housing is an institution embeds dependency and embeds disempowerment. So this is the kind of ideological basis for the way in which um, the people that lived in Grinfeld Tower were treated with the, the disdain with which they were treated by RBKC. Um, you had a situation initially in 2012 where the contract for the refurbishment was uh, due to be about 11.3 million pounds and um, administered by Leadbitter, the main contractor. Now, initially, the cladding that was going to be on the building was a fire-resistant zinc-based cladding. Now, there was an email uh, sent, an urgent nudge email, by the project manager sent to the consultancy company, a French consultancy company, Artelia, um, saying, we need good prices for Rockfield in May. You know, uh, aspiring to be a property developer himself, deputy leader of the council. <laughs> and so, what that then led to is a situation where um, the contract was taken away from Leadbitter and given to Ryden, and it was rather than being 11.3 million, it was worth 8.7 million. Now, remember, this was a council that had 300 million pounds in reserves, so it was a kind of needless austerity, really. On, uh, on the local council level. But also that led to the change from the zinc fire-resistant cladding to Arconic's PE Renovoid cladding, which had within it um, six millimeters of polyethylene. And, and that was, uh, that was, you know, according to the uh, experts on the, um, on the inquiry so far, you know, you have uh, Luke Bisbee and you have 
Dr. Barbara Lane. Pardon? Well, this was, as far as I understand, you're talking about the cladding. Yeah. So. Was it a cladding contractor or a main contractor? Well, as far as I understand, I'll just tell you my understanding of um, the events so far, were that um, the choice between the fire resistant zinc cladding. As far as I understand it, but a lot of it is yet to be made clear, was partially down to Rockfield and Mellon and partially down to Rydal. So I, I don't know where we can directly um, attribute responsibility for that specific decision, but the evidence that is available to us at this stage, maybe others on the panel will know more about that, but that is my understanding of it. Now, even in doing so, um, as far as I know, and I'm not a lawyer, EU <coughs> rules say that you have to put something up to be bid upon. And this decision to give it to our colleague, can I just finish what I'm saying, please? We'll have time at the end for questions. Okay, we'll have time at the end for questions. So the point was, is that this should have been put up for bidding, but instead it was given directly to our colleague. Now, um, you know, Arconic as a company, in 2016, they put diagrams in their own brochure at the time that the refurbishment was just about to be completed, saying that the PE Renabond cladding that was on Grenfell should not be on buildings above 10 meters. So even within their own brochure, they're saying it is unsafe because it would spread fire if it was on buildings over 10 meters and Grenfell was over 30 meters tall. Um, and when questioned about this, Arconic responded with, it's not our, um, we behave according to the regulations of the country in which we operate. So there was a, there's a transfer, a clear transfer of responsibility. And also they blame it on uh, the material around the windows. We look at a company like uh, Celatex who did the RS5000 insulation, which, you know, according to Fiona McCormick, who is the spokesperson, for the criminal investigation, she claims that the uh, insulation was more flammable than the cladding. Now, the RS5000, according to Grenfell Action Group, contains um, foam in it that is actually banned in sofas, but seemingly is not banned in walls. And the reason that it's banned in sofas was because of a campaign um, in the 80s, after which uh, tens of people had died uh, one Christmas in different fires. And so, and so, you know, we have to look at also in a situation where we are going to and have to lower carbon emissions in order to save us all. The basis upon which all of these buildings have been insulated and cladded has been off the back of the Kyoto Agreement and an opportunity that was seen within that by the companies. The understanding was that if you want to lower carbon emissions, you should insulate and clad as many buildings as you can in order to bring down energy consumption within each of those households. Also, what these companies did in that situation was say to the government, don't worry, we'll clad and, 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 uh, and insulate these buildings, but um, you can subsidize us to do it because essentially we're going to help you in lowering your carbon emissions. And so that was the basis upon which a lot of these buildings are deemed to need um, insulation. And the BRE tests 
also which leave themselves open to uh, being manipulated by companies. Celotex admitted at the beginning of last year that they misdescribed the result of their test for RS5000, which was taken off the market following uh, the fire. So, for me, it's these three major issues, uh, deregulation, um, and austerity, and the council being um, converted into a force for entrepreneurial um, Work. You know, when we look at the issue of um, of uh, austerity that took place to the fire brigade, for example, you know, you had ten fire stations uh, closed. You had a thousand jobs cut. Um, you know, you had one in five uh, firefighters that would have been in that situation had their jobs cut. Um, you know, at least a quarter of fire inspectors had also been cut and uh, 29 fire engines were lost. Um, funding for the fire service was cut by 50%, despite the fact that fire deaths were up by 20% in uh, the borough. And we look at, for instance, the stay put policy. You know, this was a policy that, while the fire had started, or was the first call was received at uh, 54 minutes past midnight, the policy was deemed to have failed at 23 minutes past one. However, the policy remained in place until 2.37 a.m., at which point 107 people were still in the building. Now, of those 107 people who were still in the building at the point the policy changed from stay put to evacuation, only 36 of them escaped and survived. There's that austerity, but then there's also the austerity that took place uh, within the building. So, Fire doors which did not self-close, um, fire doors which were not deemed not to be fire resistant, um, a lower standard of stair doors, um, you had uh, gas pipes that were all along the protected uh, stairwell rather than in a separate place, and a failure for uh, smoke control and alarms that were not working, and also a fire brigade that went in there with walkie-talkies that were not working. They had to bring uh, a ladder from Surrey, which only went halfway up the building. So all of these things came together to cause uh, the loss of human life. And it is in this way that we see infrastructure as something that is largely invisible until it malfunctions. But when it malfunctions, we have to be able to make visible uh, those uh, decisions that were made and those signatures on pieces of paper that eventually had violent consequences. Um, next, um, who's going to speak to you and probably develop uh, some of the ideas that I've just put forth is filmmaker and uh, local activist. Please check out his film, uh, Failed by the State. Uh, someone who has been integral to the movement over the last two years. So, Daniel Greenwich. I speak a bit more frankly than Corinne on this matter, particularly uh, pertains to Labour. Uh, the change in regulation, the bread of fire, happened on New Labour's watch. 
For four years they were in government while desktop studies were allowed, combining materials without lab testing. This is what happens, what the market does to logics of government, even when Labour are in power. At least the Labour that was before Corbyn, right? And the Labour that was before Corbyn has to take responsibility for all the four years it was in government. But what did it do? It blamed the Tories, it blamed Theresa May. Very easy, too easy, and way too crude to be accepted locally, right? Uh, it got into the heart of politics, yet there was no contrition, and the market beholding new Labour rights didn't feel they had to take responsibility, while Corbynism treated itself as the panacea to our problem. Don't worry, Grenfell happened because of the Tories, Grenfell happened because of deregulation. That won't happen on our watch. Complacency of the worst level, right? Why? Because it isn't essential, it's not within the quality of socialist discourse. It requires politics, and part of that politics within the period we've had since Grenfell, or within Brexit, is to talk about what regulation means. Right? One of the things I'll say, and one of the takeaway things I'll say of this, is regulation is pro-life, it's not anti-business. The things that were roadblocked over at Grenfell were there to save life. And where are you hearing this discourse now? Because in politics, the ends is the means. You have to go out and you have to fight Brexiteers on the basis of our right to life. And if you're not doing that, do you really think if you get to power on a kind of ambiguous play on Brexit that you can all of a sudden do a 180 on regulation? You actually have to do it. The means is the end, right? And so Labour, by my account, left and right, are failing on Grenfell. And I want you to take that away from this room, that actually a perception from people like myself, who will vote Labour, who is a lifelong Labour supporter, who is, through my Union Unite membership, affiliated and would vote to keep Corbyn in power, I still hold that Labour is a movement of failure. But this doesn't have to be so, and I have no, take no joy in coming to you to say this today. If you know me, I'm a critical supporter of Corbyn, maybe a little bit too critical for some. Yet when the 2017 election happened, there was something in the air as I went to the polls, and I dreamed of something better, and it looked like Jeremy Corbyn as my Prime Minister. And it felt like many across the country that day shared my sentiment. It felt like we could reverse the tide if we could push the market back and win back our right to life. Yeah? And that pushback was hard. Hardest in North Kent, in Kensington, where Emmerdent Cold took the seat off Victoria Borwick in a swing of 20,000 votes by a margin of 20. And I was there outside with the lefties of the community as we renounced Harvey Casey for skullduggery and we called out the council for trying to falsify the results. Ed Defarn, a name that is now famous for Grenfell at the time, was outside making signs telling electoral observers to investigate Tony Redpath because we saw then a very local battle. And when Emma came out, the tenseness of that moment broke and jubilation started. I, knew, I made a half-hour film that covers the community perspective. And at that moment, there was a real sense of hope within that community. And less than a week later, Grenfell burned. And party politics stopped meaning anything to most of us around there. And the world stopped meaning what it once did. Worlds diverged, diverged and chasms formed. To me, Grenfell were with everything. Within it was all that was wrong. To challenge it has been a driving force for me from very early on. Maybe I'm still reading from what I saw and felt, and maybe it is wrong to demand a political solution. That is certainly the sentiment of some who felt humanitarianism in an apolitical sense was what, was ma what mattered most at first. 
but, and after that the politics could begin. But that logic holds that the, devil that the devil sleeps. If you operate on the assumption that the devil is awake and alive in all of the details, then you need vigilance, which means politics is needed from the start, especially if you seek justice, accountability, and substantive change. Yet while certain initiatives were being taken at a local level, crude and simplistic party politics were happening at the macro. Flippant nonsense that threw off accountability and complicity happened within the Kensington Labour Group and the Parliamentary Party. And when I say the local Labour Group, what do I mean? In 2012, there was the people of Grenfell formed Grenfell Community Unite. They tried to resist the redevelopment from the very early days. And for two years they were unpeopled, muted, treated as scum, drug addicts, predatory by local Labour councillors, right? On the day that Grenfell was still burning, while its flames were still alive, an email was sent by the de facto head of the local Labour group, a woman called Judith Blakeman, to the local Labour group, calling the Grenfell Action Group the boy who cried wolf. When she was challenged about that at hustings that I organised a year later, do you know what she tried to do? She tried to tell me that I did, didn't understand what the boy who cried wolf meant, and that this was how the other people were speaking about it. Completely throwing off that the politics of contempt that was the foundation of what we saw at Grenfell was actually in the rotten core of a new Labour infused Labour Party. Right? And if we want to stop that rot and we want to stop Grenfell, then there is serious work that has to go on inside this party and this conference more widely. Right? And I'm a sensitive man, right? With an eye on social media and I look for references to Grenfell from my from my commentators, from my radical Labour politicians, and it seldom features anything now more than a bullet point, a crude stick that you can hit the Tories with. And I'm here to tell you, this is as much your failure as it is theirs, right? Why? Because, as Corinne said, right, in 2006, changes that happened to regulations because of the Lackmar House fire bred an ambiguity. That ambiguity let you combine materials that should not be combined, that lab testing would have shown were essentially accelerants for fire. I mean, on Grenfell Tower, when it burned, there were 30,000 litres of solidified petrol. And the decision-making process that allowed that to happen was there when Labour were in government. So this isn't, you cannot pose to be a panacea, you cannot pose to be in a binary world, their problem with a solution. It doesn't work like that. And so what does it look like? It looks like many different things. On a local level, it looks like the development of a level of political autonomy. And that is now happening, and on the 9th of October, the local Labour group are leading a charge to push for devolution. Something that they, I believe, took from the more radical side of the community politics afterwards and are now seeking to contain within a relatively party political approach that would allow them to break the cabinet system of the local council of the Royal Borough. And the endeavour is to be supported to a certain extent, but only so far as it is their politics of containment to allow the moment to benefit them. And within that group are people who are complicit, are people who in the second phase of this inquiry you will see fall from grace, and you will smack your mouth at the audacity of the words that they used. So bear in mind that as this enters into the second phase, there are going to be many bits of dirt thrown at Labour politicians that are going to stick. 
And so it's not something that is going to be simple for this party or this movement to be able to deal with if you play tribalism. What matters more here is the moral creed that socialism is in a party that has lost that moral creed and is more liberal than it is socialist. And if, we're going to, if Corbynism means anything, then that push of a socialism has to mean that on a politics of principle, you take the people who are complicit to the cleaners. Right? You deselect them, you ruin their reputation. say at a local level, a national level. Corbyn has had to deal with many things, right? And it's very easy to sit on the sidelines as a kind of commentator and critique them, right? I'm not here to say that. But what I am here to say is that there has been a cynical use of Brexit. And to allow the next election to be fought over Brexit when we had Brentford happen is an insult to me. Yeah. Yes. Right? Uh, it's an insult because Nothing says the extremity of the moment we're in more than the deaths that happen as a consequence of the evils of our world at this moment in time. Right? I mean, RBKC were non-compliant with fire safety. Their non-compliance was so well known that the corporate sector targeted the sale of these materials that by their own admission should not go above 10 meters and Grenfell was 67 meters tall. Right? Not only is that that, that, did that happen, but that has not been criminalised at this moment in time. And right now that can happen again and again and again. And even the regulations that we've won, which Labour didn't do, Lannan tried to take responsibility for because he's an opportunist, right? But, um, but campaigners at a grassroots level push the government to adopt new regulations. Do you know what that regulation does? It doesn't touch buildings below 18 metres. It doesn't remediate buildings that are covered with this stuff right now. There are places, and what also happens, and again, hasn't been scandalized by your movement, by your party, is that there's a thing called high-pressure laminate cladding, right? HPL. The government sat on the safety reports of this stuff for nine months. It is more combustible than ACM. It puts that number into the hundreds of thousands who are at risk of death in this country. And where is the news? Where is the campaign? There are people in Salford, there are people in Croydon, there are people all around this country who are arguing against this, who are mobilising. They are forming and trying to mobilise into a larger group, the UK Cladding Action Group being one, UK Cladiators being another, right? But they are not being supported. A party infrastructure like Labour, I mean, what I wanted to kind of tell you, what I would like you to take is that there are, that an institution like the Labour Party should be a repository for all of the social movements and social justice movements that have happened in the past. So that when Grenfell happens, you can look at Hillsborough. And so you can roll out the stuff that was recommended because bereavement survivors did loads of the work that would have assisted us in those early days. And had we had a national institution capable of picking up and carrying those legacies, we could have taken them into our DNA in those early days, but we didn't. We had to reinvent wheels, right? We had to reinvent wheels, and I mean that, because actually half the stuff we argued for had been argued for after Hillsborough, after Gosport, right? There are plenty of state crimes and scandals that give us ammunition in a fight against the state, and Labour should be part of that. But what has it been? It's sat out, in my opinion, right? 
It's been on the sidelines at best. And it's just not good enough. It's not good enough because right now, when we go towards Brexit, we're going towards deregulation. Right? Your, the movement to table the commitment to free movement, I believe, is going to fail at your conference today. And I don't believe you're going to table the motion as regards regulation when it comes to Brexit. Right? So if we take the twin evils of a right-wing Brexit being deregulation and border controls, you're losing. Right? You're losing. And you shouldn't even... And part of that loss isn't even considered a loss because nobody's talking about it. Right? Like, and we have to have a serious and adult conversation about the type of regulation that is problematic, that is the red tape, and the stuff that is there to guard our lives. But right now, it's all crudely in one box and so convenient for a Tory government or a Farage or a Trump-infused populist to come and ride Russia over our lives and put more of us at risk of death in this country. Right? And here I'm speaking to who I see as natural allies, who I see as people who feel this in their sternum and solar plexus like I do. Right? Because actually, this is our movement. Right? This is our process of challenging this. Right? Because actually, when what happened happened, you pretty much created a whole bunch of new Labour supporters, right? The Tories did, right? Because actually, countrywide, people understand what that is. They understand that that is what happens with deregulation, with austerity, with criminalisation of needing subsidies to live, essentially, right? Which is what the neoliberal market state has done to working class life for a very long period of time. And people are ready to push back. But where is that pushback, right? Where, what does Grenfell mean? It is not a bullet point on a list. It is not a stick to beat the Tories with. And I'm taking names of anyone I see do that anymore. You, you reference Grenfell, you do it justice, right? You don't say it at all, right? And I could go on, but I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Territory 
of slums and squats and a refuge for artists and bohemians and musicians and drug dealers. Um, this diverse population had been joined in the years after the war by many of the Windrush generation, immigrants from the Caribbean, and racism in the area was endemic and the black community clashed quite often with white, white working class men. Back in 1958, in August, Notting Hill had been seething with violence all summer. The Saturday before the area finally exploded, nine white youths had embarked on what one of them called a nigger hunting expedition around Notting Hill. They were armed with iron bars, blocks of wood, an air pistol and a knife. By the time they finished, five black men were in hospital, three of them in grave condition. But it was the following Friday, 29th of August 1958, when the touch paper was really lit igniting the worst racial violence Britain has ever seen. It started with a minor dispute with a young Swedish woman and her black husband. Um, they were having an argument outside Latimer Road Station, which is just next to Grenfell Tower. Um, a white crowd soon materialised to defend the Swedish lady, who didn't want to be defended, um, and a scuffle broke out. Later on in the evening, a 200-strong mob of white young men rampaged through the streets of Notting Hill armed with weapons um, and shouting down with the niggers and go home, you black bastards. But it was the murder of Kelso Cochran that really created a movement. Kelso Cochran was a 32-year-old Antiguan immigrant who was working as a carpenter to save money for his law degree. After fracturing his thumb, he went to Paddington Hospital, St Mary's Hospital, and on his way back to his home in Lubbock Grove, he was set upon by a number of white youths who stabbed him with a stiletto knife. No one has ever been held accountable for the death of Kelso Cochrane. And that sparked more riots, and out of that, Notting Hill Carnival was born. Lamar Grove residents, we've always fought for our land, our services, and our community, whether that be the recent fight to keep our local community college, which we won, um, which, or to stop giving away our public land. We used to have a citizens advice bureau that's now been sold off and we have a prep standing in this place and they attempted to get £6,000 a term prep school in the other side of the building. So Grenfell happened five days after we elected our first Labour MP. We still have a Tory council. Um, and there was, when we'd elected Emma Deco, there was a kind of sense of relief, like things would change. And then Grenfell happened, and as a community, we were back in action again, not least because there was no official body or authority or political party in the first few days of the fire to help. Our community were out organising beds and clothes and donations and services that were being stripped away from us due to government and local council cuts, as well as the selling of public land. And we began to see what was going on and how horrific the response was, and we had residents who were asleep on the floor of a sports centre for nearly two weeks. Um, and it kind of seemed to get go from bad to worse. I got involved in campaigning about four months after the fire. I had a period of PTSD, and it was awful. Um, and it nothing in comparison to what the bereaved survivors have been through, but that's where I was at. I couldn't see past this cloud. And I went to protest at the Tory party conference in um, October of 2017. And I felt really empowered, and I felt there was something, there was a change that I could make here. I hadn't done a public speaking thing since mass in secondary school, where I read a prayer, I think, in year eight. Um, I, but I had to get over my own fears and my own um, 
unconfidence to fight for my community, for a community that has raised me, has raised all of us, a community that I deeply care about. Um, I like to humanise what happened at Grenfell. I want people to remember that it's not 72. These were, these were women, men and children, brothers and sisters, and every single person sat on this panel lost someone. Um, and every single, almost every single person that sat, on, that sat on this panel was there that night and for the weeks after, and now we are two years, two and a half years later down the line, and we're still here fighting. Um, I would like to say, sorry, I've written it down, that uh, Grenfell Tower has demonstrated starkly class and space are very much intertwined in London, more so than anywhere else in the UK. Kensington and Chelsea is the only London borough where the population density is falling. The rich occupy more and more space per person, whereas the working class is forced to live in cramped, unsafe conditions. The way housing has moved away from democratically accountable control into the hands of opaque companies has a big part to play in the Grenfell atrocity. The government ignored the advice of, all part of the all-party parliamentary group on fire safety and complied with an agenda that doesn't serve the residents of these council blocks, but the corporate interests of those who seek to profit from them. Our community has stepped up. We've continued to step up, and we will continue to step up. Labour hasn't, and Labour needs to. 72 people plus died on, in Grenfell Tower on the 14th of June 2017. They need justice, we need justice, and we need change for the people that are still living in unsafe buildings, the people that are going to school in unsafe buildings, hospitals, universities, we need change. And I'm a Labour voter, I'll vote Labour for as long as, until something better comes up. Um, <laughs> but it's a party right now that I don't have much faith in. They haven't done enough. Every, I don't know how many of you, how many of you think you're living in an unsafe building? None of you? Maybe that's because you're a couple? Alright, well, if you come to our community, I think everyone would raise their hands. We're a community that's been forgotten, but we're not down. We're standing strong and we'll continue to fight. I think that's all I'm going to say. Thank you.
My mum was campaigning a lot along with Ed and, and I was very naive and ignorant to it. I was just like, mum, there's nothing we can do about it. Like, just let them carry on. And then, yeah, fast forward, Emma Dent was elected and we were feeling a bit of joy and a bit of power was coming our way. A few days later, Grenfell Burns. It's back to square one again. Tories are taking the piss. For me, what it is, is I just want Labour in power at this, at this moment, just to say, just to get the Tories out of the way, because they're the better of the Eagles, that's it. I can't really tell you another reason why I would go to Labour. One thing that Labour needs to learn from this is Rock, Rockfield and Mellon, one of his reasons for, and, and the way, reason he got away with it is because he was saying the area's run down, we need to give these people new aspirations and stuff like that. And it's like, why? They were before him, so why 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 has he stepped in after him? Why is he allowed to say that? What did Labour do before that for him to come to that conclusion that the people around here have no aspiration? And I think Labour need to address that first before they like like Dan said, don't start using it as a stick to beat the Tories with no. Address the reason why you were in power for so long and it hasn't and it's come to this, so yeah. Can I ask you a question? So, in terms of since the fire, um, I would say the way in which people have been treated by the council has changed slightly. So, the disdain that was present before Grenfell is still there, but it has to wear a veneer of. Uh, kind of very neoliberal um, consultation kind of stuff. Mm. Now, your particular experience with the council, how have you felt unpeopled or dehumanised in your relationship with the council since the fire? Well, they just don't listen to you. It's like me telling you there's a spider on your shoulder now and you're just staring at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> to the point where I just have to knock the spider off the shoulder. <laughs> And now you're getting me arrested for assault. <laughs> and that's, that's just how they make me feel, like they just make me feel like no one. And obviously with everything that's gone on, you can only take so much. And when I'm sitting there and I'm watching experienced people like Tashar, um, intelligent people like Low Keys, all these people talking and they're still not listening. So now I have to stand up and say, if you don't listen, I'm just going to grab you by the neck and shout in your ear. And that's how they make you feel, and that's, that's what it is. You can, you can hear the truth. And you're still, you're still like, counteracting it with nothing. Like, just, okay, we, we understand you. You don't understand, because you're not changing nothing. Mm -hmm. Run. Run? As a councillor, I'm saying. He's more as councillor. No, no, no.
similar to, to Reese, I, I didn't have a political background. Um, I didn't come from a family of activism. My parents were very straightforward, played life by the book. Um, great family to be, to be raised in. Um, lucky enough to live in the Lumber Grove area for, for 31 years of, of my life. Um, the 13th of June 2017 was a normal night into what we had thought. Um, I've gone to bed that night expecting to wake up at 7 in the morning as you do to go to work the next day. Um, to be woken up just after midnight by screams and the sounds of sirens. Uh, to then step out of my property to see uh, Grenfell Tower on fire. Now this tower sits tall among other towers in the building in a very congregated area. Um, but a lot of life, a lot of memories, a lot of your childhood memories come from these kind of places and estates and, and, and blocks that we have in the area. Um, and to see the building go up in the time and speed that it had, and to see the lights of people's homes still on while the flames rip around their flats, and see people screaming for help, see people tying bed sheets in an attempt to climb out of the 14th floor of, of a building is heartbreaking in itself. And for me personally, it was a day where life had changed completely. So the whole understanding of politics, the whole understanding of the council and how evil their work really is, um, was all new to me, to be honest. And I'm still learning now. I sit here and I'm thankful to sit on a panel with, with, with people like this because, like I said, daily we're learning. Um, for me, it was important that we came together and on the night of the fire, it was immediately about rescue, it was about offering support, offering a place of sleep. As we said, there's been major cuts to a lot of the services within the area, so buildings that you would expect to be open or organisations that you would expect to be there at a time of tragedy, understandably, were nowhere to be seen and not present. Um, the council were not present, uh, and it fell to, to the everyday people of, of the community. And you know, when you, when you live in an area like Labrador Grove and Labrador, you don't, I mean, you grow up loving, loving your area. We, we, we are, you know, very supportive of our communities and, and how vast and multicultural the, the, the community are. And we all take, we all learn from each other and we all, we all grow together. But that night and the council's lack of response was, was life changing. And for me, personally, the first three or four days, we were on the brink of absolute riots. Um, emotion, pain, sorrow, sadness, people still searching for loved ones, children looking for mothers, and vice versa. And, you know, I felt, like I said, I haven't had a political background or a background in activism, but I look back and the only thing that really stuck to me was the London riots that happened in, in 2012 and you know that was going through my head and the majority of people when you speak to them about the London riots, the riots is the only talking point and people, well the vast majority of people have forgotten that the reason behind the riots was a man was shot dead by a police officer um, and the community of Tottenham had lost a member of their community and you know they, they set the standards in rioting. 
the upsetting thing with that, from my point of view, trying to think with a clear head was the people who rioted after that were then played as the aggressors, the, the, the oppressors, the, the violent, the criminals. Um, and living in Nambergrove, living in the area, I think for me personally, it was vital to make sure that the wider public, the world, the, the country in itself, didn't view us as your typical brown, black, white community of thugs and criminals. Because growing up in London, that's how you're judged quite a lot. I mean, you are stereotypically judged on the way you dress, the way you speak. Um, and it was important to make sure that the world looked at us in a different light to what they may have expected us to be. So the Justice for Grenfell campaign was launched, um, I believe, on the 21st of June. Um, between the 14th and the 21st of June, the streets were manic. We'd ran out of space to hold donations. The donations were coming through quick and fast, to the point where it was becoming more of a safety issue with the amount of donations coming in because we had no council or no authority to really guide the process of where this should be going. So in essence, we were creating further fire hazards by stacking boxes of clothes and nappies and things under tower blocks. We were opening our own homes to allow people to store the donations until things calmed down a bit. Um, and it was many. It was the closest. I've never been in a war zone before, but for me it was the closest thing to being in a war zone. And then the, the campaign was launched and it was the first time in, in that week or so where a few hundred people walked in complete silence. And I hadn't heard silence in the area since, since before the fire and there was something very, very empowering from it. There was, some, there was a time to reflect, there was a time to think, there was also a time to feel confident in the people that were around you. When Grenfell had happened, naturally the area was flooded with good-hearted people and with bad-hearted people, people opportunists coming in to, you know, cash out on, on what had happened in Grenfell, people from the council coming to try and cover up, you know, issues that had led to, to the fire at Grenfell. And for me, it was very important that we, um, we stay united, away from the council, away from the government, a very community-felt and a community-led movement. Um, so after that walk, uh, a couple of the survivors from the tower managed to leave with their life, asked that we do this monthly to honour those who are no longer with us, and also to show the government that we are going to stay united and we will grow in numbers and we will stay pushing for justice and making sure that those who are accountable for what happened that night um, hold the full, full breath of justice. Um, and so it grew. Um, you know, we started off on the first walk, the first official silent walk had a matter of about 40 or 50 people and that didn't feel right. It felt emotional, um, quite disheartened by it. And then slowly it grew and the support grew and as Karim just mentioned, it's, it's become a tool for many things. So now for people who live in the community, rather than being alone and stuck inside your house on the 14th, which is a horrible day, it's a horrible day. A lot of us won't sleep clearly on the 13th, not because we're overthinking, there's just something within PTSD, within these mental health issues that remain with you and 
mess up your normal, normal rotation. But now we know that on the 14th of every month we come together, we walk together, we welcome those from all communities, near and far. We've had people come down from Newcastle. I've had people fly in from Amsterdam just to attend the, the silent walk and to stand in, in solidarity. And it also really shows a message to, to the government. And I think the main message for me would be on the anniversary just gone, we managed to have 11,000 people fall silent at the sound of a word. And I think the message to the government is if 11,000 people are willing to fall silent at the sound of our voice, what else are those 11,000 people willing to do in this fight for justice? And so it's important that, you know, we stay together and we kind of... For me personally, I've got to a stage now where two and a half years in and the silent world does a lot for the community. Um, but also I have to come to an understanding which was hard to do. It also does a lot, a lot for this current government as well, unfortunately. And that was never part of the initial plan. That's a realisation that I'm coming to as of recent. Um, but initially, my thought was for the survivors, the bereaved, and the community members of Labour Grove. And we've put a, a, we've put a somewhat peaceful movement in place, uh, which is why I say it, I feel like it may have assisted the government as such. For me, going back to the point where I'm not political as such, I vote now, to be honest, it's become more of an importance to me. And this touches back on the point of this Labour movement at the moment needs to understand that the, the depth of, of people within our community who were asleep to the whole political side of things were woken up on the 14th of June. To be left by our current Tory council and the Tory government, we were looking for another alternative to come in and support that. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. And we are two and a half years in, still feeling very much alone in, in this movement. Um, are very much up against the, the government that it's feeling harder and harder to fight every single day as the days go on. So what I would say is, yeah, from, from a Labour movement is really, you know, this focus on, on the home soil and a focus on the issues that are happening here at the moment and making sure that, that we come together and, you know, we support these kind of movements. 72 lives lost, as Tasha said, mothers, children, some entire families. So we may not get certain, the, the, the thought of carrying one family name for some families is non-existent anymore because we've lost mother, father, three children, four children. Um, and for me personally, we can't let that happen. And that's the only reason I'm still sitting here today, is to honour and make sure that those lives are not lost in vain.
our values is not met with what we actually do. And I know that too well um, here in Brighton, anyway, that's what I'm asking is, really is what is that campaign coordinate well? And then what can I do to help that? Like, what can we do to like that is meaningful? And like so many things in the fucking enterprise, right? They say this and that, and we've supported by the class one people with experience, blah, blah, blah. Blocked, 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 because I can't always take this time to do this because it's not. What we say, we do it to do different fucking things, right? What we're saying about holding these people to account, what can I do to help? Is that what I'm saying? Great question, and it's they, they different. It's a very local question if you're going to be honest with yourselves, right? Um, there are over 500 blocks with ACM cladding on. Probably more if we add in HPL. And then if you add in the timber as well, we're probably, God knows how many buildings are covered in combustible materials right now. How many of them do you think are local Labour councils? How many of them are you going to not be able to make the, the convenient RBKC argument? I'll tell you, factually in London, there's at least 20 of those buildings in local authorities run by Labour. So this isn't party political by its very nature, right? And so you need to, and use a little colloquialism, you need to bat up those Labour councillors. You need to drive them the hell away from the administering of life, right? Anyone who makes the decisions to rack blocks in petrol does not have the right to administer life anymore. It's really simple, right? I mean, Reese made a great little analogy, right? Let's make another one, right? We all decide to go get pissed down the road and get back in the car to go back to London and the person driving totals a car on the motorway and people die and say a collision causes 72 deaths. We're going to prison for manslaughter, isn't it? Right? At the very least of what I'm saying is the people who make those decisions. And they are, there's, a, there's a community activist in North Kensington called Miles Hellstones. He refused to interface with the council in the immediacy of the fire because he said you've got murderers in your house. Yeah? Within every local labor authority, there are murderers, right? Or could be murderers. People who've made the decisions that are just like the decisions made at Grenfell, right? They have no place in government, right? We have to shift the culture of government. That means that they are not beholden to the market. They are beholden to the people, right? And if they ever get that twisted, deselect them, run them from town, right? And until we're there, we're not having the movement that's necessary to save lives. We're going to watch another thing happen, right? To quote Ed Defarne of Grenfell United and the Grenfell Action Group, Grenfell 2 is in the post. And we don't know when it's going to arrive, right? And every day that we live in the country where that is a possibility is a day that we should be pursuing justice for every single person who has made the decisions like those made at Grenfell Tower. And there are all the, there are hundreds of thousands of people at risk of death in this country, which means there are hundreds of people complicit in those decision-making processes. Right? So drive the rot out of your own party, then let's deal with the Tories. Right?
power sex. It's more like just like purely out of interest. What, what are your reasons for not entering into that process? Personally, it's morals, morals, and then I'd say locally for everyone, it's a royal borough, so it's a lot harder. A lot, it's just a royal borough, without sounding like a conspiracy theorist or crazy. It's, it's a royal borough, and it's always been majority Tories. You have to look at the area first. Like you said, the poor people are crammed in, the rich people, they are the majority, so it's very hard to get voted in. I can get my local support, but it's a massive borough that love the royals. essentially a crown jewel of the Tories taken over Brexit, right? Um, Emma did a great campaign, those of North Kensington members voted, a lot of youth mobilised to vote through people like Oki, but really it was Brexit that determined it, right? Now, there have been failures locally with Labour, and to a certain extent with Emma as well, right? Um, and there have been conversations about what can be done 
But if you were to run right now with Labour as an incumbent within Kensington, at an MP level, a uh, single issue candidate, it would split the progressive vote and give the seat back to the Tories. Right? Now, while I, I come here to send a very clear message to Labour, and I will be unapologetic with that message, but I'm not going to ruin the chances of a parliamentary majority. Right? I'm pragmatic in my solution here. Right? But long term, if, the, if what is being said is not heeded very soon by this party, it will be replaced. Right? It will have absolutely no space within the spaces that we operate in, because actually the rot is there. Right? And this is a dynamic movement, and there's a lot of hope. And the things that I've seen coming out of this conference really, truly do give me hope that what Corbynism represents will lead to that substantive, meaningful, long-term change that this country so needs. Right? So are we willing, I think, to give a little bit of wiggle room and time to see if Labour can get its acting gear. If it can't, if it can't drive out those murderers, if it can't solve this problem, it will simply have to be replaced and we will have to start to look very seriously at the formation of a party political movement that can take this up. But for now, I think we pragmatically give Labour a little bit more time. Um, one of 
Well, there was a big cultural shift in the construction industry about 20 years, 30 years ago, from what we call a traditional contract, where the client, player who doesn't know anything but wants to build something, hires an architect to lead. They get all the money, they then hire everybody else. So when an architect spec the building and said it has to be this level five group planning on it, to change that spec, the, the contractor would have to go through the architect and get permission. Studio E. Yeah. Now we don't do it that way, it was turned on its head um, and we adopted a contract called design and build contracts and whole cultures changed towards these. They, they allow us to build faster, but the person who's buying materials is the boss, it's the contractor. And as soon as Grenfell happened, I made the connection there and of course it's since come out that the yeah, contractors have changed the spec. You know, without even knowing there was a higher spec, I assume it would be a higher spec. Um, so yeah, I just, I just wanted to give you that and tell you to look into that a bit more. Um, the, um, the bench studies that you used to start, don't be too critical of those. If an engineer's got integrity, they can do those properly. The desktop um, studies. Yeah. That you want to look at bench testing. Mm. You touched on system testing. And certainly shift, the shift away from bench testing to full system testing um, would be something that you should be looking at. Um, some people in, in the sector have started, um, started looking at that as well. Oh, I, I'm, I'm currently unemployed, so I, don't, I can speak freely. <laughs> <laughs> service in-house themselves, but you can imagine if your big businessman, your money man, the MD or whatever is on your case, um, and you've had five or six tests, and three of them came out better than, than the others, is going to be pushing you to use the results of those. So, uh, so maybe a national institution that comes in and observes the testing, let, let's let industry bear the bear the millions of costs of setting it up, but let's make sure I'm sure experts are there witnessing it to make sure it's accountable. Um, so a few, few things for you to think about there. And uh, if you want to have a chat about the industry in a bit more depth, there's a lot of technical stuff I think we could talk about. So. <coughs>
where people's priorities and how communities are valued. And um, I, I just think we've got to start putting pressure on our councils, freedom of information requests. Um, we need to be linking with people in an un unsafe buildings. You know, it's just absolutely disgusting what's been going on. And, you know, I think uh, uh, I am a member of the Labour Party in Nottingham and I apologise for the lack of action uh, that we've done in Nottingham around this issue. And I'm going to go back and I'm going to start doing something about it. And, you know, if, if, if you can
to not come and knock on my door and ask what my voting intention is, but to sit with me for two hours and work out what I think, right? And then maybe come back around and have a couple of conversations, maybe hang around the local boozer before you ever step to my door, right? Because that's what movement building is, right? It's not my voting intention. It's what I think and feel and what that would look like in a local politics, right? And for me, that really does, that's, it's so obvious because, ask these lot, I, didn't, I wasn't born in North Kent. I live there now, but I didn't live there until a couple of months back, right? So when people ask the question of what, how, how it can be done, I did that, right? Because I went and I sat on Main Street, and I went and I lifted boxes, and I went and I assisted at the side of marches, and I stewarded, and I, there was nothing that I thought I was above, and there was no person who I didn't think I could learn from. And through that, I developed the politics and an ability to communicate on this issue that people want me on these panels, and I'm not, I'm not speaking for, I'm speaking with, right? And that is something that solidarity is. That's what I mean when I say that the Labour Party at this moment is a Liberal Party, not a Socialist Party. Because what I'm saying is actually so obvious, and it's so basic to socialist organising, that the fact that it's not in the bonds of this party is just part of the kind of rot of liberalism that has to be addressed as part of, our, of the Corbynist moment. Because that's what it is, right? It's, it's a lot of time that isn't instrumental. It's a lot of time where you are not just trying to get something out of me, but you are sitting with me because I'm an end in myself. And so is every other community. And if you treat them like that, then you're going to have that thing because it's so it, it falls out of meaningful, humane movements of solidarity. Bizarrely, rather than being generalised. 
And you know, it, it, that ambience has allowed for someone to burn an effigy, not realizing that the people that they're laughing at in that building are now related to people that are fighting for their safety in their homes. And so this is about safety. It's not about identity. It's not about geographical location. It's about the sanctity of human life, housing as a human right, and safe housing as a human right. And, and that's what needs to be communicated in a very crystal clear way. I think maybe we have one, we do, do we? <laughs> I mean, yes. No. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so we're here. Um, thanks for coming, get involved. Um, let's get military.